This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. One of the challenges that church faces today is the erosion of, of trust in institutions. Um, according to a 2022 Gallup survey, only 31% of Americans had a great deal of confidence in organized religion. And when you compare this to 1973, 65% of American public indicated they had a great you know, deal of trust in the church or organized religion. You know, with, with the erosion of trust in the church, um, how, how do church leaders positively influence the life of the community around them? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to on an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 704- 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Father Aaron Westman. He is a Vicar General and Director of Formation for the Glen Mary Home Missioners. Aaron is also a contributing writer for the American Magazine and has authored a new book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. Father Aaron, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much, Andy. It's great to be here. So, so despite 
putting off the vibe that, you know, I know it all. I truly love uh, learning new things. So I was struck a few days ago when I was preparing for this interview as a person who is ordained and recently required a doctorate. My official title has changed to Reverend Dr. Andy Hale, but only my kids, I require them to call me Dr. Daddy. Um, so you you have a PhD uh, from Catholic University. Um, so, you know, I wanted to know, should I address you as uh, Father Doctor or what? So according to my research, no academic credentials can ever exceed the importance of being a priest. Is that correct? Or, or how should you be addressed? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. And uh, I, I'm okay being called uh, Father Aaron or Aaron. Um, and I think you're right. You know, I think central to my identity is uh, is my my identity as a, as a Catholic priest, and that's the thing which is most special to me. Um, it's the it's the place from which I, I gather most meaning in my life, uh, and I'm truly grateful for that for that vocation. Um, I've been at, felt blessed to have a chance to, you know, study uh, and receive different degrees in different places and have different experiences. But I think central to who I am is is my life as a priest. Well, let's stay right there. You know, we were talking about this pre-record that um, it's always fascinating for those that weren't raised in the Catholic Church to get insight into um, what I like to remind people as a church historian by two degrees was the church for the first 1600 years of our existence. So, you know, as I indicated in the opener, you are a vicar general and director of the formation for Glen Mary Home Missioners. Um, this is a religious order, a missionary society uh, of the Catholic Church. For those that aren't familiar, you know, there are dozens of orders in the Catholic Church. Most probably have heard of the Jesuits, the Benedictines, the Missionaries of Charity, and, and Franciscans. Tell us about your sense of calling um, to this form of an order. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, within the Catholic world, uh, there are many of these religious communities, as you mentioned. And I think what happens is, historically, there will be a particular person who thinks that the church should focus her efforts on either a particular task or, you know, a, a specific part of the gospel and kind of live that with a greater intensity uh, to witness to that aspect of the gospel or, or that particular ministry. And so in the history of the church, when that has happened, the Catholic church has kind of said, okay, well, if you think that's very important and we think it is too, why don't you form a community around that particular aspect of the gospel, aspect of the gospel or that particular ministry? And for myself, uh, in the community I belong to, which is Glen Mary, our founder was actually a, a priest uh, from the East Coast from Baltimore, and he was a, a diocesan priest, so like a priest which people kind of normally kind of un understand and know, and he was given a an assignment in a rural place uh, in his diocese, and he fell in love with rural America, but he also saw that there were kind of great challenges that needed attending in rural areas of the United States. In particular, the Catholic Church historically in the United States was not very present uh, throughout rural America, especially throughout Appalachia and, and the South and Southeast. The Catholic Church grew up primarily on the coast and in, in bigger cities. So our founder, Father Bishop, said, you know what, we really need a, a missionary society in the Catholic Church that is dedicated to going to rural parts of the United States where there's never been an official Catholic presence and to living among the people there and, and building relationships with them and you know, bringing some of the gifts of the Catholic Church and sharing those with others if they're interested. And so for like 85 years now, Glen Mary has been going to these different counties throughout the United States. We've established something like 130, you know, different parishes, different ministries in, in counties where they never existed. 
And I fell in love with Glenmary because I met a Glenmary priest back when I was studying mathematics at the university. And I never thought about being a priest and I never heard of Glenmary. And I, in a sense, through that relationship with this priest who became a mentor of mine, who was a Glenmary priest, um, I kind of fell in love with the charism of Glenmary because I love rural America. I, I love kind of the natural reality of living there. I, I love being outside, going in the woods, going for walks. And then I liked the idea of going to a place um, where I was kind of the outsider, where I was the, the, the minority, if you will, um, and to be able to kind of bring my experience as a Catholic to places where it's never been before. And I was able to you know, really live that out in, in the Glenmary way of life. We had uh, Sister Norma Pimentel on the podcast um, a couple weeks back. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was discussing with her is that, you know, for a lot of people don't realize that the Catholic Church is the largest charitable organization in the world. And her work uh, along the Texas-Mexico border uh, with migrants, um, you know, so give us a little insight into kind of what the day-to-day -day operations of Glen Mary, um, you know, what you all do in investing in rural, poor, and non-Catholic areas in the U.S. Yeah, so I can talk to uh, the experience I had when I was first ordained a priest. I was sent to East Tennessee. And there were two counties, um, and the, the, the towns in those two counties, the main towns were Rutledge and Maynardville. And when I, when I was sent there, I joined up with a group of Glenmarians. Uh, so we had uh, one priest there and a couple of brothers. And what we began to do was really just live in the county. Uh, we, we purchased a house. Uh, we started having services or, or masses in, in the house. We actually did it underneath a carport. Uh, we would go around the town, we would introduce ourselves to people, we would get to know folks. Um, we would make kind of uh, public invitations in the area if people are interested in learning more about Catholicism. You know, we were there, we were, we were open to do that, we were excited to do that. Uh, we started to invite the few Catholics that, that were in the area to come to, to Mass, to kind of be part of this nascent, this beginning uh, Catholic community, if you will. Um, and so little by little, the, the, the Catholic community started to grow itself. We also worked uh, heavily with the non-Catholic Christians uh, in the area. Uh, we got to meet the, the various ministers who were there. We, we prayed with those ministers. We did Bible studies with those ministers. We actually hosted events together uh, with those ministers. And then we would try to attend to the needs of the poor in the area. Uh, so that might be um, through a food pantry that, uh, that was needed. Uh, it might be by just simply, you know, helping people in their day-to-day -day life if they can't make ends meet, uh, providing uh, resources to them, but always sort of partnering with the folks of the community and with the area rather than kind of coming in and just doing it our way. We tried our best to learn from the folks that were there to partner with them uh, and then to do our best to do what we call sort of bringing about uh, the kingdom of God in the counties that existed. Now, interestingly, uh, I think um, Catholics aren't very familiar with this, but uh, in the Glenmary world, we are very used to renting storefronts or to kind of making use of sort of non-traditional facilities in order to build a church. And so for the first basically 10 years or so of the church's existence in, in Maynardville and Rutledge, we were in storefronts. So we were having mass next to a barbershop and a pizza place. And, you know, like that was our a common experience for us until we had you know, more resources and we could buy land and build a church. And thankfully now today, uh, there is there are two churches, so one in each of these towns uh, that never existed before, and the, I think say that the Catholic churches are very vibrant in these places as much as it can be.
We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. So you have a a new book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. You wrote, through every generation, the church has encountered various challenges that shaped her mission and vision and practice. Um, polarization is our challenge. Take us uh, into kind of the backstory into the formation of writing this book and and why now was the important time to do this. Yeah, that's a great question, and I appreciate you asking it. So my community, Glen Mary, asked me to uh, pursue an advanced degree in theology, so to work on my doctorate in theology, and they gave me permission to go over to Belgium to study at the Catholic University of Louvain. And so I was over in Europe from 2014, more or less, to 2017, 2018. And I was working on that PhD. And being over in Europe gave me a reprieve, if you will, from the cultural, political situation going on back in the United States. You know, I immersed myself in my studies. I went all around Europe. I I took in the history and culture and the architecture and the art. And it was really a glorious experience and worked on writing my PhD and was able to bring that to conclusion. I had studied the challenge of secularization uh, through a missiological perspective. Well, then my community asked me to come back to the United States and that was in 2017, 2018. And when I came back to the United States, it was just so obvious to me, at least because I had been away, that something was different and something had, had changed. And I try to capture that by saying it just seemed like there was an intensification of the negativity and vitriol related to polarization, such that I had not remembered experiencing before I had left. And I really wondered what had happened. And kind of as I came back in, I had heard all of these stories then from whether it was uh, ministers, and so non-Catholic ministers, um, shepherding evangelical churches, uh, whether it was priest friends of mine working Uh, in their parishes and they were just saying to me you know we're so tired and exhausted because the sort of political divisiveness has come into our churches and we're having a hard time keeping our churches together to keeping our members together you know we try to preach a sermon or a homily and you know we we think it's coming from the very center of of the gospel and we are accused you know one way or the other of of representing the democratic party or the republican party so all these people were, were talking to me about their experience and they were exhausted and I sort of also heard from my own family members and, and, and they were having such a difficult time kind of living in, in the environment in the United States. I saw what, what friends of mine and family members were sharing on Facebook and, and on Twitter. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, I know these people and that doesn't really seem to me to be who they are. And yet, nevertheless, they're sharing these sort of negative posts. They're making comments. It, it's, they're, they're becoming something they are not. So I saw all of this taking place. 
And I really naively thought that I could kind of stay above the fray because I'm like, oh, you know, I, I was living in Europe and I just got my PhD, so I'm special and all that. And whether it was in my priestly ministry, whether it was in my community in Glenmary, whether it was with my family, I, I realized that I was sucked into what I call the storms of polarization or the logic of polarization too. You know, I would hear a particular a church leader in the Catholic world speak and because th that person didn't represent maybe my ecclesial views, I would get super upset and, you know, and I would just kind of get triggered inside and I'm like, what the world's going on? Or I would, you know, I'd hear a particular person being covered on the news or speaking on the news and, and then I would be getting upset. My heart would start beating. And this was not my experience when I was living over in Europe, you know, and then I, I came back in and I, I realized that, man, I was getting sucked into this too. So I wanted just to understand what does it mean for us to be polarized? That word was being thrown around a lot. It wasn't always clear to me that we understood exactly what was meant by polarization. And then more importantly, you know, how is polarization affecting Christianity and, and probably specifically, you know, the Catholic world, which I'm most familiar with. And then perhaps another important question, which is how are Christians, how are Catholics contributing to uh, negative polarization in their own right. So I started to study the theme really more as a hobby. I mean, I was serving as a pastor at that time, so I didn't have a lot of free time. I started to study it as, as a hobby, became very interested, started to give talks on that theme. And then as I was giving talks, people kept saying to me, you know, Father Aaron, you should really consider writing something more on this because, you know, we, we really need uh, help kind of trying to understand what it means to be in a polarized world. And then especially how can we respond in a hopeful way as Christians from our Christian tradition uh, so as to kind of undo some of the negative polarization which is existing. So after a while, I sort of, you know, took their advice and put myself to write this book um, as best as I could. So that we can get our, our bearings from, from your perspective. Um, and then no, this this is kind of a, a broad question, but walk us through some of the major currents that are sweeping across the American landscape of this current polarization. In other words, what do you think are the, the big kind of key things that are polarizing our culture right now? So that's a great question. And um, I'll just sort of name like three or four sort of broad categories and touch on them a little bit themselves. And of course, there's more detail in the book. So the first um sort of contour that's bringing about polarization. And this has to be seen in, in the period of at least the development of five or six decades is what people often refer to as sorting, uh, in particular geographic sorting. So over the last five or six decades, people in the United States have been given the opportunity to move uh, on, in an unprecedented way. And as people have made decisions about where to live, you began to have the formation of really two groups. So when we talk about sorting, we really are talking about the formation of two massive groups. And these groups are separated geographically. And first of all, they're separated geographically politically. So you, you really do, you look at the maps, you look at the statistics, you really do have a coastal America and a heartland America. You really do have an urban America and a rural America. And the separation there is, our, is divided by political uh, perspectives and, and political preferences. Now, okay, and that is unprecedented really in the history of the United States. Um, but if you add to that, those groups are also different 
uh, in any number of some of the most important ways we understand ourselves as human beings. So again, statistically speaking, we've sorted into two groups, geographically, politically, also psychologically, uh, racially, uh, religiously, and then culturally, how we entertain ourselves and kind of what we do in our day-to-day -day lives. So sorting really means that geographically, people from these two major groups just are no longer living around each other. And what the science of polarization says, you know, when we form two groups like this and we don't uh, live around each other, we don't have contact with each other, certainly there's an unfamiliarity which comes about from this. Um, then there are also biases and prejudices that can come about. And in worst case scenarios, you also have since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. again, it makes it groups don't have a lot in common for us to kind of bridge the chasm, whether it's politically or culturally or philosophically or theologically or religiously. And then the third kind of major contour uh, that I touch on is what's called intensification. And that is today, I think perhaps more than ever for an, a number of reasons, members within their own uh, sorted, what we call mega groups, are feeling a deep sense of uncertainty and fragility because of changes that have happened in the United States, whether that's demographic changes or, or economic changes. Um, they're also feeling a greater sense of fear uh, and negativity toward members of, of, of the other group. And that is what we call the rise of, of negative polarization. And when there are interactions between these two groups, uh, they are often very unhelpful, uh, very negative. There are a lot of presumptions made uh, from one group to the other about who is a member of that group and, and what they believe. And in fact, you know, people within these various groups are actually thinking that the other group is responsible, you know, for undermining the, the very country that we're living in and perhaps, you know, bringing an end to um, the liberal democratic, democratic society in which we are living. So that's an intensification of negativity. Now, just to add a point to this, uh, I think it's important to kind of look at the church and, and Christianity and, and how we have not only been influenced by polarized society, but also contributed to it. And one of the things that I look at uh, in the book is the whole mentality around the culture wars. And this metaphor, that is that, that metaphor of war, it has been quite significant politically in the, in the United States over the last 30 or 40 years. It sort of arose out of the, uh, of the conservative Republican group and then was brought into uh, Christianity in, in many cases and has become this sort of operative metaphor for how Christians in many cases understand the world around them and relate to the world around them. And it is by utilizing this war mentality that I think that the church has been in many cases responsible for intensifying polarization, namely 
rather than seeing the world around us through the lens of the gospel or through what I call Jesus's incarnational movement, we're seeing the world around us through the lens of, of war. Uh, and so when I'm engaged in war, the so-called other, whether it's the political other, the racial other, um, just the general other, it is seen sometimes as my enemy without distinction or nuance. And when we're engaged in war, um, my job is to destroy that enemy or else at least keep distance between myself uh, and the enemy. So I try to unpack this, this war metaphor and show how it's uh, impeding us as Christians from really living the heart of the gospel. And then I sort of turn us in the direction of how we might embrace better the vision that Jesus provides to us. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. It's easy in, in our given times to not you know, pull our head above the mess to see that we've been here before. Um, in other words, there, there have been other catalytic moments in history in which there has been tremendous polarization. I, I think of the 1960s countercultural revolution or the 1920s, 30s, and 40s with the rise of fascism and communism in response to capitalism and imperialism, or, or certainly, you know, the 1850s and 1860s, the fight over slavery that led to the Civil War. But what makes this moment different than all the rest when it comes to polarization? So it's a great question. I was actually just over at um, uh, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania at a Braver Angels conference. And so was, you know, re reminded very well of the divisive period um, during that time when the, when the battle was fought there and, and when Lincoln gave his address. And so I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there are many different moments in the history of the United States where there has been division and polarization. And I could just speak for the church, too. You know, we saw going all the way back to the experience of uh, the Apostle Paul, I mean, his main message to the to the, the, the nascent Christian communities was, you know, we need to remain united. We need to remember that we are united in the same body of Christ. And he was constantly trying to bring the community back to their baptismal uh, identity in Jesus. So uh, a number of people who are researching polarization um, argue that this is an unprecedented period. Um, and, and they say, you know, we should just we should be aware of, of, of this being the case. And, and part of it is going back to some of the contours that I described, you know, so we used to be politically far more mixed uh, in throughout the United States. So we didn't have the, the sorting to the extent that we do today within the political parties, such that you have such an extreme kind of rural urban divide, such an extreme coastal and heartland divide. So that is certainly new in the last five or six decades. It also used to be the case, and this has to do with homogenization, that the political parties themselves just had far more diversity of thought and opinion and also kind of uh, makeup within the parties themselves. And the process of homogenization has meant that that has become less and less the case. So we again are in a, in a new situation because of that. There's, there's less 
sort of common ground uh, shared between uh, the two parties, uh, if you will. And then I think for a number of reasons, we could argue that um, the intensification of negativity um, is is at our, at unprecedented levels. I mean, so political scientists will look at you know different statistical measures and they'll ask the question like you know, thirty years ago they asked you know how upset would you be if you as a Republican your your daughter married a Democrat and it was you know just less than ten percent of the people would be upset. Well, those numbers have tripled or quadrupled today. You know, so that whole idea of, of that you know somehow it's sort of unheard of. Uh, that people would, you know, that their kids would would sort of relate to or even marry within uh, another political party. So that it's again another measure that sort of the the negative perception that we have of the other party is is really at an unprecedented level. And then I would just add the whole the whole mentality around media today and and social media, I, I do think is is gasoline to the fire of polarization. It is fueling. Uh, the negativity that exists today. And that is, you know, rather than getting into the, the details of it, it's simply because the platforms really seem, whether it's traditional media or social media, the platforms really seem to benefit from uh, stoking negativity um, and, and stoking a sense of, of punishing of the outgroup, um, putting the outgroup in a, in a negative light. And we spend so much time uh, on, on these media platforms um, and in a sense, they're, I think, affecting us in ways that we really are still trying to understand how that's the case. So um, there are other reasons that I could relate to here, but those are just a number of the contours. Uh, and, and it relates to those who are studying polarization today. It's say we really need to, in a sense, recognize that we are at a difficult, difficult moment. And it is somewhat of an unprecedented moment. We've been in divided times before, but but never in one that is like ours, particularly because of the rising negativity and, and the, the media that we use. You were talking about, you know, homogeneity um, earlier, and of course, um, its influence on uh, kind of the the circles we run in. And, and social media certainly is a tremendous indicator of that, because we now can quite literally control what we see and what we hear. Um, it's not just the unfriending or unfollowing of someone, but we can actually right click and get rid of articles that don't fit into our worldview. And so more and more work and community engagement and religious affiliation and friendship and media consumption, online presence, we are becoming more homogenized. Um, and, and, and to a, to a certain degree, this is natural human impulse, right? We were, we were created to tribalize in the sense of uh, gathering around people that we can know and we can trust that can keep us safe and secure the the there's tremendous downsides to that um you wrote um not only are americans sorting there's also a process in that and place of that within those sorted regions and groups there are increasing movements towards uniformity homogenization the result is that large sections of the u.s have little in common with other sections the commonalities that perhaps do not exist are slowly fading away and there's little incentive and opportunity to associate with groups that are different. I, I want to shift over to the church because the, the church isn't immune from all of this. So walk us through the church's role in polarization. Yeah, so it's a wonderful question. And um, I recognize that when I was looking at this, um, this challenge uh, in my own life and, and talking to people that, you know, 
for those of us who are actively engaged in the church and have, you know, kind of are cultivating this deep relationship with Jesus through the church, um, the church is a very special thing to us. And the church is that for me. I mean, I've given my life to the church. And so I, I, I tried to move as kind of sensitively through this aspect of polarization as I can, because I don't want to lose my audience. It's, it's you know, we have to think that in the church, we, we also are going to have this sort of identity protective cognition taking place. Namely, it's something special to us. So we, there's going to be tendencies for us to want to protect if you will, the church or even defend the church, because it's so special to us. It, it's a group that is giving us life. So I recognized that I had to be sensitive in this task. Um, nevertheless, I think the church is at its best when it can be self-critical. I mean, I think we as individual Christians are called to examine our lives, examine our consciences uh, and, and bring those before God. And I think we, we can do this as a collective body too uh, within the church. And so as I kind of go through the book, I, I look at the sociological and the political scientific research, the philosophical research, and then I pivot to the church. What I do is I actually try to provide an examination of conscience, which we're kind of very familiar with in the Catholic world. Uh, we particularly during the Lenten season, we utilize these examinations of conscience to see, you know, how are we falling short in our discipleship. And I actually look at the marks of the church, uh, the properties of the church, namely that the church is called to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. And what I do is I put forth some kind of great shining examples in the, in the history of the church and how they've lived a cultivation of unity or how they've lived Catholicity with the lower KC, for instance, or how they've um, been holy, if you will, uh, how they've lived apostolicity. So I hold these people up as examples. I talk about, you know, what the calling of the church is. And then I kind of say, now, based on the research, based on what we know about polarization, based on what we know about group dynamics and group psychology, and based on what we can see, these are the ways in which polarized culture is impeding us from living the life of discipleship that Jesus is calling us to. And I'll just give you kind of one, uh, I think, example, which continues to stand out for me, and, and which I'm very um, kind of challenged by. So, uh, in the history of the church, Thomas Aquinas is this great intellectual thinker, uh, this, this great uh, synthesizer, if you will, of Christian tradition with other philosophies. And Thomas was a great example because of how he approached the world around him. Um, he was open to truth or goodness or beauty, wherever that could be found, whether that was within pagan philosophers, Greek philosophers, uh, Jewish philosophers, Muslim philosophers, or whomever else he was able to enter into a dialogue with. He was open to the wisdom that they could share with him. Um, he, he wasn't afraid of it. He wasn't insecure in engaging with it, but he was open to that wisdom. And he was always able to find ways to, to bring that wisdom into his own experience of Christianity and then the broader experience of Christianity in general. And because of his, his practice of Catholicity, if you will, uh, he, in a sense, benefited the church, I think, in many ways uh, going forward. The challenge in, in Polaris culture is that what we, when we form groups and when we aren't really conscious of, of this process happening, uh, we can get into what we call groupthink. And it, it, this has been demonstrated in a lot of psychological research and other research that we as human beings actually 
can succumb to uh, the pressure of the group to think a particular way, even if we know deep inside the values of the group aren't necessarily the values that we share because the, the pressure on us to, to sort of get along with the group, to remain in, in the group, uh, and, and to not be ostracized from the group is so strong in us as human beings. And you mentioned that groups are really important. And in a sense, they, they are that way because they've, they've helped us to survive. They help to give us meaning and purpose and belonging. So we will give into the pressures of the group. And because of that, we won't always necessarily stay open to what others might be able to share with us. And that is, that is the so-called you know, philosophical other, might be the racial other, might be the political other, that's not a part of the group that I'm a part of. And because of that group think, I may not be able to be open to what they have to share. And in fact, they might have a question, or they might have an insight for me that I need to learn and I need to know in order to live my life as a disciple. And so that's just one example. And, and I walk through a number of examples in the way in which polarized culture is impeding the church from living out her mission. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. One of the challenges that church faces today is the erosion of, of trust in institutions. Um, according to a 2022 Gallup survey, only 31% of Americans had a great deal of confidence in organized religion. And when you compare this to 1973, 65% of American public indicated they had a great you know, deal of trust in the church or organized religion. You know, with with the erosion of trust in the church, um, how, how do church leaders positively influence the life of the community around them? So this is a major challenge for uh, the church today. Um, it's a major challenge for any institution today. There is just a general lack of trust within institutions and particularly institutionalized Christianity. Um, Catholics uh, in the Catholic world uh, have struggled in the last 20 to 30 years with the sexual abuse crisis. Um, and so there are, there, are, there are real true reasons why people uh, are struggling to trust leaders within the church because when asked to do the right thing to protect the most vulnerable and then to um, make decisions about how to deal with you know, perpetrators of sexual abuse, the church didn't make the best decisions and made horrible decisions in some cases. So, I mean, it's understandable why people in, in the church, you know, struggle to, to trust the church and its leaders. One of the things which happens from that, of course, is that, you know, they're, we're, we're trying to kind of pass on a, a deep, wonderful tradition, and that, that tradition is passed on through uh, our leadership in many cases, it's through other individuals as well, but in, in many cases it is passed on through leadership. And when leadership is saying, you know, the church should be about doing A, well, people can be very distrustful of what the church is, is saying 
whether that's doctrinally, whether that's practically speaking in terms of morality, because the church has seen its leaders um, put forth a very uh, insufficient example, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years. Now, that's not unique to our moment, but that is, I think, for many Christians in the United States, um, particularly many Catholics in the United States, that's something that's felt uh, at a deep level. I would suggest um, that one of the ways that leaders can you know, try to regain that trust is to actually go about the process of what Pope Francis has put forth, which is the process of synodality. Um, namely, I cover some aspects that are interrelated with synodality in my book, uh, but namely that uh, I think leaders today have to do the best job they can to what I call crossover, to be around groups that feel marginalized within the church, that feel like they are on the peripheries, that feel like they no longer fit in, and to just exist around them uh, principally. So I think that's that's a whole idea that just being around each other uh, in itself is already a very good thing. Now, in the midst of leaders of the church kind of crossing over to these marginalized groups, one of the most important things I think we can do today uh, is to cultivate a disposition of curiosity. So, and with curiosity comes about this whole uh, need to be able to listen. Listening is so crucial. Listening doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with what a person has to say, but listening opens up a space in which a deep relationship can begin to be formed. And when that relationship begins to be formed, a deeper sense of trust uh, can come about. Um, and then and then with that, I would say um, just being willing to then continue to journey with people, even when there are differences, even when there are disagreements. And that doesn't mean that um, that we all can't share our experience of Christianity, share our story, and even share something that we've come to understand to be true. Um, so that dialogue is definitely going to be a, a two-way street. But I think for, first and foremost, it's a matter of crossing over, being around marginalized groups, being around people that no longer trust the institution of the church, trust the leadership, cultivating a deep sense of listening, and then when appropriate, uh, sharing what one also has come to know to be true in one's life. In closing, I, I want to go back to that quote I read in the opener. Uh, Through every generation, the church has encountered various challenges that shape her missionary vision and practice. Polarization is our challenge. How does the church's missionary vision and practice respond to polarization in, in a practical way? So in a very practical way, I think each individual has to do a, a deep job of examining one's conscience and asking, you know, how have I allowed the broader culture of polarization to affect me? How has it um, muddied the water for me and sort of made it difficult for me to, to really see the vision that Jesus is inviting me to, to really see the fullness of, of the message of the gospel? Um, how have I broken off relationships? Um, how have I kind of turned inward? How have I given into group mentality, uh, seeing the outsider as a them uh, that needs to be destroyed? Um, how have I succumbed to negative polarization? I think as much as we can do the individual work uh, of examining our own conscience, uh, that will make a huge kind of huge difference going forward. And then I think the second thing the church has to do, and this is individual Christians and then also communities, 
is we have to go about a process of of identifying whoever the outgroup is to whether it's my local parish, my local church, my family, whoever that outgroup is, identify them, and then in prudence find ways to cross over to be around those people who are different, to enter into conversation with them, to listen to them, and and frankly, to, to be able to share my experience of the gospel with them, which has kind of been at the heart of the logic of the mission of the church, you know, since its foundations. And just to give you a perfect example of, of identifying an outgroup and, and being around them, Glen Mary is my, in my community, we're heavily engaged in deepening Christian unity. So for us as Catholics, priests and brothers and lay people in Glen Mary, we, we, we all the time are, are identifying um, the so-called other uh, in the Christian world. It might, might be the Southern Baptist. It might be the, the Cooperative Baptist. Uh, it might be the Pentecostal. And we are trying our best to, in a sense, step out of our own in-group and to cross over to be around them and, and do this in different ways, uh, such as within the Christian Forum, which is an event where we just sit down at the same table together and we share our experience, our mutual experience of knowing Jesus Christ. And it is unbelievable how much unity is deepened in that moment doing something which is in one sense profound and yet so basic. It's it's talking about how I've come to know Jesus with other people who have come to know Jesus. And I think we can expand this to other religions, other political parties, and other people uh, maintaining different philosophical perspectives. Our guest is Father Aaron Westman. The book is The Church, Mission, and Polarized World. Um, Father Aaron, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to see the pains of polarization, seeking to cross over and bring about the kingdom of unity. Thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciate it. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.